We take a single episode of a science fiction TV series and overanalyze it to within an inch of its life. This is the Fusion Patrol Podcast. Welcome to the discussion. Hello and welcome to another episode of Fusion Patrol. I'm Eugene. And I'm Ben. And tonight we have a scary, scary story for you. And no, I'm... I'm not talking about Revelation of the Daleks. I'm talking about the uh, fourth or fifth episode of the new series of Doctor <laughs> Who, and that's Neil Cross's Hide. Fourth. Fourth. It's fourth, yes. Okay. Gosh, it, it seems longer. Because they haven't been all that... Well, because we've had two really dreadful episodes. Well, <laughs> okay, really dreadful episode. <laughs> uh, synopsis time. It's November 25th, 1974 at Caliburn House, and Professor Palmer and his assistant, Emma, an empathic psychic, are trying to contact a ghost. After a ghostly encounter, a knock at the door signals the arrival of the doctor, who has arrived for a bit of ghost-busting. After Professor Palmer explains the haunting, the doctor and Clara explore the house. Clara is very scared. The doctor finds a cold spot and marks it, and when Clara crosses it, the manifestation begins again. First, a flying disc appears, and then a vision of a ghost and the words, Help me, appear on the wall. While the doctor develops the film he took, he and Professor Palmer talk about duty and death. Elsewhere, Emma and Clara talk about love. Emma warns Clara off, off the doctor, saying his heart has a sliver of ice in it. The doctor forms an idea and uses the TARDIS to tour all of time, from the beginning to the end of the Earth, to take pictures of that very spot. Once again, Clara says the TARDIS doesn't like her. After the tour, Clara is depressed. She realizes that, to the doctor, everyone is already dead, including her, and she's just a ghost. The doctor replies, you are the only mystery worth solving. But it's ambiguous if he means Clara or the human race. From the photos, the doctor makes a slideshow and realizes the ghost is a time traveler trapped in a bubble universe running at a different speed to us. And she's being chased by something. With a lash-up that would make the third doctor proud, using a blue crystal from Metabilis Three, and a subset of the Eye of Harmony, he uses Emma's powers to open a wormhole to the bubble universe. There, he is stalked by the beast and finds Hilla Tacorian. Earth's first time traveler. The doctor loses his way, so Emma sends an image of the house for the doctor to orient himself with. Hilla manages to escape, but the doctor is trapped back in the forest. Emma collapses, and the wormhole closes. The cloister bell in the TARDIS rings and calls Clara, but then it won't let her in. It then manifests an image of Clara and has a conversation with her. Clara finally convinces the TARDIS to save the Doctor, even at the risk of the TARDIS's life. Once the wormhole opens again, the TARDIS lets her in, and they're off to the parallel universe. The TARDIS rescues the Doctor and brings him back through the wormhole. The Doctor re reveals privately to Emma that he didn't come for the ghost. He came to talk to her and to ask her about Clara. What is she? Emma says she's just a normal girl. It's then revealed that Emma was able to contact Hilla because she and the professor are her great-great-great-great-grandparents. The doctor realizes that the monster needs to be reunited with the other one that lives in his universe, and so the TARDIS makes one more trip to rescue the monster. Okay, well, we talked uh, last week a little bit about this episode, saying we were looking forward to it, hoping that uh, Mr. Neil Cross, who wrote it uh, and, and did such an abysmally bad job with Rings of Akaten, 
uh, could redeem himself with this sort of non-sciencey story that was more a ghost story. Uh, how do you think he did? Oh, it was certainly an improvement from Rings of Akaten. Uh, while that episode was completely uh, void of any plot and had just the thinnest of character development, I thought this episode was... Uh, it, it had more of both, especially in terms of character development. But I, again... <sighs> I, I I kept feeling like I, I really wanted to like this because I, I I love a good ghost story that's that's set in sort of a sci-fi sort of feel, you know, like a sapphire and steel kind mm-hmm, of thing. Mm-hmm. I love those. And and I really wanted to like this one. And it just felt like it sort of kind of came up short, fell flat, and it didn't exactly fire on all cylinders for me. It had good moments, but other moments just kind of kind of petered out. Particularly the ending, uh, I thought. Oh yeah, just, just sort of totally petered it out. It started strong. I think. I think the episode started really strong, and then just kind of began to lose steam. Yeah, it was very atmospheric. It it was uh, uh, it was quite scary. I mean, I, I wasn't scared, but my kids were. Um, and and there were some genuine jump moments when the lightning would flash and something would be there. Uh, particularly the 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 creature. That was skittling around like a sort of crab-like thing um, in various rooms. Um, I, well, I enjoyed the story. I mean, I, it's not perfect, as you said, but but I enjoyed it uh, vastly superior to Rings of Akatan. Um, I'd say I enjoyed it on par with, say, the Bells of Saint John. Oh yeah, that that's fair. I mean, I I liked it better than Bells of Akatan. No one near as much as Cold War. Uh, yeah, I'd say I'd, I'd put it on par with uh, Bells of St. John. Yeah, it, it, you know, nothing's if, – if anything's as bad as Rings of Akaten, then we, we oh, have some serious God. problems um, coming up in the episode. Uh, so we had two characters, Professor Palmer and uh, and Emma, his assistant. Um, and this is set in 1974, which I don't know if you, uh, if you did any research, but uh, I tried to check and see if that date had any significance. November twenty fifth, nineteen seventy four. I didn't. Um, it has none. Oh, well, there you go. Doctor Who doesn't run during November back in those days. Although so, did it premiere November? Yeah, November twenty third. Yeah, was the premiere of of the original episode of Doctor Who in sixty three. So this would have been pretty darn close to the twenty first, uh, the eleventh anniversary, I should say, of Doctor Who. Eleventh um, anniversary, eleventh Doctor. Um, however, it was. That date fell between the airing of uh, Planet of Spiders and Robot. Ah. I don't know if that's of significance. Uh, Robot started... I I can't really draw any connections. Well, there are some connections to Planet of Spiders. Oh, well, there's... It's true. That is true. Yes, there is a connection to Planet of Spiders. Yeah. I was just thinking in terms of it being a ghost story, very atmospheric, things like that, or or anything in the history. But you're right. uh, There is a trivial connection to Planet of Spiders. I particularly liked the character of, of the professor. I thought he was an interesting an interesting man, um, a, a war hero, basically World War II, uh, a spy in charge of, um, what was it, the, the League of Ungentlemanly? Well, they called it the Baker Street Irregulars is one of them. I and then they also said there was like the League of Ungentlemanly. I, I honestly can't remember. But it felt like it was something of significance. Or at least it was supposed to be, and and I cannot remember. Yeah, I don't know if they were meant to be. Well, obviously the Baker Street Regulars is from Sherlock Holmes, but you you could see how a group of spies might have a name like that 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 pertains to what 
they do like unusual activities or uh, dirty tricks, the ungentlemanly league or whatever. I, I could see that as being possibly his his role, and I think that's what we're supposed to be take from this is that he was um, he did a lot of tricky and clever espionage and sabotage and whatnot, kind of like Hogan's Heroes. Mm. And um, this character, I understand. I I couldn't independently verify this. Um, well, well, should say the doctor seems to have quite. Not quite the man crush on him, but the doctor has quite a bit of hero worship. Hero worship, guy. yeah, yeah, for this guy. And you know, considering we've never heard of him before, and he's not a real person, you know, I could see him having a big hero worship for um, uh, Charles Dickens or Einstein or you know some real person that we, the audience, might have a connection with. But you know, for just the doctor to pop up and then have to rattle off the litany of who this guy is, so that you understand how much of a big fan he is. Uh, of this guy felt a little odd and so i read somewhere and and based on some other things in this story i could kind of see how this might happen that the whether it's the production team or the writer or whatnot they were hoping that that character could be bernard quatermass from nigel neal's quatermass stories and in which case then he probably wouldn't have been a spy he would have had to do with all of the uh, you know the nasty things that happened in the exploration of space for for uh, them in the in the 1960s when he was in the British rocket group and and you know again an extremely um, accomplished man who's seen a lot of death uh, from people dying from things that had to be done uh, so I mean I could see how it fit but a couple problems apparently there was no go on the rights not allowed to do that uh, oh. for whatever reason and also it's well known that Nigel Neal hated Doctor Who oh well that's that's sad so. Uh, probably, you know, if his, if his heirs might Oh, yeah, his, his estate is probably carrying out his, his wishes. wishes. Like, oh, he'll never put this on Doctor Who. I think that would have been better. I think that would have been cool if they could have done it. Um, there's a lot of Nigel Neal in this story. Not saying that Nigel Neal did anything, but for example, uh, and listeners to the podcast, longtime listeners will know, but if you're a new listener, you want to go back and listen to episode 74, um, uh, Simon and I looked at Nigel Neal's 1970-ish special on the BBC called The Stone Tape, which is a story of a house that is haunted. And it's haunted because the bricks themselves have maintained an image of the last moment of this girl's life. And she she's constantly screaming. More, some people can hear her more than others. And it's all about this scientific investigation of this this ghostly phenomena, uh, which they begin to work out. And one of the one of the sequences that we're told about is that there's a room that's been bricked up, and inside the room there had been, you know, soldiers had stayed here, American soldiers during the war had stayed here, and they found a guy who had died in the room. They'd left cans of spam for the ghost, and he was like writing journal entries telling please asking the ghost to stop screaming and i mean that's word for word oh yeah from this episode right I mean, from the story yeah uh so obviously there were some i'll call it an homage to that work the the stone tape which you know to this day paranormal researchers have basically co-opted this fictional idea that nigel neal came up with because that's what paranormal researchers do um <clears throat> editorial but oh, oh. they <laughs> they um 
they call the phenomena that a house or a, a, an object can maintain some sort of an echo of a past catastrophic event. They call that the stone tape theory from that. And there, a, oh, bit of there trivia, a little bit of trivia. Uh, so uh, let's talk first about, uh, let's save Clara and the TARDIS for, for a little bit down the road. Um, what worked for you in this story? I love the setting. I, I love uh, the, the, the house, castle, whatever you want to call it. I, I thought that was just beautiful. It makes for a good setting for a ghost story. I think the character development was incredibly strong, especially in the beginning. A very, very great character development. I mean, it kind of peters out as you, as you go along. But the characters were compelling. I mean, I, I became very curious as to who is this Professor Palmer. I mean, and forget the fact that the doctor has his hero worship for him. I thought that the way he was written as a character and the way he was acted by, by the actor himself – uh, made him a very interesting character. I mean, he, the actor was able to bring out a lot of, a lot of depth and convey a lot of the emotional weight and baggage that he's carrying because of his experiences in the war. And then you've got Emma. Uh, I seem to remember the doctor saying, uh, that, um, empathic psychics, I mean, they, they're among the loneliest people. And here is this actress who, by the way, slight bit of trivia. Um, is going to be playing the part of Verity Lambert in an upcoming doc. Uh, it's a doc, it's a Doctor Who docudrama. Yeah, about the making of the original. About the, about the making of the original doc, Doctor Who. She plays Verity Lambert. So anyway, I thought she did a great job of being able to play this this woman who has clearly has these feelings, but for whatever reason, she's she's trying to reach out, yet she's isolating herself. He's isolating himself. And yet they're both driven to try and find some sort of answer to uh, who was this ghost. They were just so – they were – I thought they were very well-developed characters. I suspect – and, you know, we talked about during during Rings of Akaten. Neil Cross is a famous uh, and award-winning writer, uh, not on evidence in Rings of Akaten. But here you can see glimmers of what could have made him – you know, in a different setting, in a different time, in a different place, here's a guy who can do characters and and can make compelling uh, dialogue and, and whatnot. And, I, you know, we've talked about it before. Russell T. Davies is vastly good at conveying people's emotions and, 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 and dialogue that conveys emotions. And, you know, that's his strong suit. And I think that's, uh, I think that's this guy's strong suit as well, uh, or as best we can see from the two episodes we've got. Well, this one, it was very strong. I mean, with, with, I know we talked about a little bit with Rings of Akaten. There's that scene with Clara and, um, Queen of the Years, the little girl, but it, it felt too insubstantial for me in, in, in that particular story to, um, have any significance. Much different here. Did, did you think in that one that, um, was that scene hampered just by the girl not being very good at it? Because I thought Clara came off, uh, you know, she gave a very nice performance and speech about, you know, how a, a, perhaps a parent would be giving a, a build-up talk to a kid. It, it came off very uh, natural to me on that. The, the little girl... Not so good, and no, no, that no, might have diminished it, that. It, it wasn't. It wasn't her performance. It. It was just the way that entire scene was presented, with everything that was going on. It. It, it felt like that. That scene was just yet another another event that was going on 
uh, in this in this marketplace. So it made it feel unimportant. Yet with and, and yeah, there's there's just tons of action going on. I mean, even though that the scene was just between the two of them, it was still in the midst of all this action with all these other characters going on. With Hyde, it was just them in this house. So it sort of intensifies any character interplay that's going on. At least, at least that's how I perceive it. So I, for that, I, I thought it was incredibly strong. Um, and th- those are so, I thought those are some of the high points. I, I thought, uh, when we were talking in the, um, the character, when they were in the, uh, the professor and the doctor in the, the dark room and they're having this discussion, um, we are kind of presented with the, a little bit of the backstory on the professor and about how he, killed a lot of people in the war. He killed people in the war. He says that outright, whether he means he shot them or by or his own them. hand or whether he ordered them to their death. He also said he ordered a lot of people to their death. And he talks about what a glorious cause it was, and, and it was a worthwhile cause, not glorious. He's a worthwhile cause, a great cause. Yeah, hardly and, glorious because he's otherwise he wouldn't feel so guilt-ridden. But I don't know that he does he's, he's carrying. Guilt. Well, he's carrying, he's carrying something. something. He's carrying weight. Yes, he's that, carrying that, that much certain. He hates to talk about the war. He lies about his war record. He see, yeah, he's he's carrying some weight behind it. But at the same time, when the doctor, you know, kind of compares it to him and says, "Well, look, here you are, all this, and now now you're hunting ghosts. Why are you hunting ghosts?" And the doctor has what's essentially a, a flash of insight. He says, "If you found the ghosts, what what would you say to them?" And he's not talking about the ghost in the house. He's talking about the ghosts of the men he sent to their death. And his answer is not, you know, I'm sorry, which is what you would expect in a cliche. His answer is, I'd say thank you. And I think it's just really a question of giving it some finality. But some closure he, or something. He really recognizes that it wasn't something that he did wrong, and it wasn't something that they did wrong. No, he. F- I, it I was get necessary. That, it was yeah. a necessary sacrifice, and they made it, and he would I, honor I, it. I would dare say that he felt like he did the necessary thing, not the right thing. I yeah, I think that's safe. And so, do you think any of this carries across to the doctor, who is also, uh, you know, a survivor of a war who has caused incalculable deaths uh, or destruction could be uh i could see that parallel but i wouldn't draw in this particular episode or at least not give it any uh credibility isn't the word i would not give it any significance for this particular series at this time uh given given what happens later well you've already broken it down in the synopsis and that is why did he go there he didn't go there to see palmer he went there to see emma yes so any kind of maybe trying to find some peace within himself by talking to palmer well i mean if if that was the goal it it certainly wasn't presented because it it, at, at the end we find out that he didn't he he was there to get Emma and kind of pick her brain about Clara. Well, and again, though, in in sort of what is now going to be called Neil Cross fashion, you know, the ending of the story doesn't really pan out with the story that you're presented along the way. Oh, good heavens. You know, I mean, we're, we're, we're seeing this story about hunting for ghosts and the doctor's there for hunting for ghosts and da, 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 da. And then you get down to the end and really the doctor's not there for hunting for ghosts and the monster's not really exactly a monster. And, you know, it, it, and it's not just 
it's not a logical reveal like the ghost woman is actually a time traveler. That's sort of a logical reveal in the plot of the story. But the reveal at the end that there's just two lovelorn monsters trapped in different uh-huh. universes comes out of nowhere and it goes takes, nowhere. It, t- it, it takes the steam out of something that is just really creepy. And that yeah. is not only is there this ghost that they're trying to uh, get to the bottom of, but there is this thing in the house. And it's not just a ghost. It's an actual It's an, It's a thing. corporeal thing in the house, and it's creepy, and it moves very uh, – in a very inhu- or unhuman sort of way. I mean it, it, looks, it, it looks malevolent. It looks – Threatening. It sounds threatening. It sounds, it sounds threatening. Evil. I mean, it just it and the way it creeps in and out of the shadows, it it makes it look scary. And and, and, and I put and that under good, excellent. Pardon? I put that under oh, the good part. Oh, excellent scary very, monster. Very, oh, very very good scary monster. Very although, well done. Although at one point it's apparently holding M, uh, Clara's hand, uh, but then when the lightning strikes, it's fifteen feet away. So. I I didn't quite get that, but it was a great Scooby-Doo scene. Yeah. You know, it's like, okay, Shaggy, you can stop holding my hands now. <laughs> and then monster reveal and whatnot. But uh, so uh, all of the, the buildup with the ghosts and the, and them walking through and the creaking of the house and the, the, the scared, you, you really got the feeling that Clara was scared. The doctor was scared. My kids were scared. Um, you know, when when the lightning would flash, I would jump occasionally. It's like, <laughs> wasn't oh, yeah, expecting yeah, that there, one. yeah, there was one scene where um, I think oh, they were looking out a window. You're looking out the window when the doctor dematerialized, yeah. No, 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 no. I, I don't know if it was that or not, but there's a lightning flash and you saw something uh, in the window the with woman, them. Yeah, the woman's. But yeah, that's when he's saying, I, I don't see where they've gone. Is I heard an engine, but yeah, that's I don't it. See a light. And then. <laughs> And, and then, and, and I went, whoa, yeah, yeah. So it's, it's yeah. It's, it's, I mean, it, it was, it was effective. And I didn't check to see who the director was, but he did, a, he did a great job. Um, just, I thought he did a great, yeah. I, I thought the way the monster moved. Too, oh, very, very creepy. Something about how they kind of would time shift it a little bit here and there, so it, it didn't, it kind of blur moved from place to place at times. Well, it's, it was well quite... yeah, in the pocket universe, it was doing that. But what I loved about the way it was moving in the house and that it was, you never got a full look at it. It was Part of it was always hidden in shadow. Until you did get a good look at it. And then it was a get, huge yeah. letdown. Yeah, and like, oh, really? Uh, but while, when it was just moving in the house and it, because it's very deformed, it, you could, I mean, I couldn't help but project some kind of, um, very sure cool. as Jack. Well, no, no, that, that wasn't it. I, I was kind of thinking, um, I hate to use, uh, this particular movie, but I, I was sort of thinking along the lines of like Exorcist where, uh, um, I was thinking Poltergeist. Well, Poltergeist did, might did be a good one. They have a lot of twisted, they had like, Twisted creatures in Poltergeist, didn't they? I, I'm I confusing my 1980s ghost movies, but I think I don't know if they did or not. But 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 you're talking, but yeah, it's something along those lines where something is just moving in a very it, it it's human, but it's not human, and it's moving in a very inhuman sort of way. But instead, we what we got was yeah, it was just basically your monster of the week. But when it was moving in the house, it just was creepy. See now, I disliked the the when they showed the creature because it was twisted, and he and here's why. I'm not you saying can, that I liked it. No, you you can do you can do 
you can do all sorts of creatures in Doctor Who and costumes and 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 show. And I'll I will take that as read. And maybe this is this is some sort of OCD on my part. But when you take the creature's face, no matter how alien it is, and you decide that you're going to to make it look like clay that's been melted in in the oven or something, and the eyes you know drift into odd positions and whatnot. It, it offends my it offends my sense of symmetry that you'd normally get with natural creatures. So now it's no longer a natural alien creature. It's some sort of alien creature that has also suffered some sort of damage. Yeah, that, that takes the scare out of and it. And it, it makes you go, well, now, is that actually some sort of supernatural distorted monster or is that a real creature and if it's a real creature it shouldn't look like that and if it's a supernatural thing it has no actual place in the story no and 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 yeah if and again if you're right if it, it's a real creature it's like what the hell kind of evolutionary laws took place for that thing to develop exactly it, it just doesn't you just like okay um well that's, that's why just a i assume creature. that it was from the pocket universe Okay, and if, if it was, maybe then some strange physical laws. Uh, that how did one there. get in the house? And, and yeah, and and that, that of course that was the big question. How did it get in the house? And then if, uh, if yeah, it's, it's just living in that house, how the heck did it get? How did the other one get to the pocket universe? I just a- unanswered questions. Unanswered questions, and that's unfortunately what I was talking about. When they get to the end and they suddenly reveal, oh, it's just a lovelorn monster is trapped in opposite universe. And if you just start thinking, you go, well, but, 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 why did you do this to me? Why, why did you throw that out there when I was just done with the story and I basically enjoyed it all the way across the through? And then you throw this little twist that, in the context of the story that you've just told me, makes no sense whatsoever. You've well, undone all the good will that you've built up with me in the story by throwing that crap ending on and there. The other thing that, that got to me was, okay, if this is just a creature that is um, wanting to get to its mate, and that's why it's been banging down the door, basically. And the doctor even acknowledged this. Oh, that's what that knocking is all about. Um, Except why was the one in his universe knocking on the door? <laughs> but if, if, when the doctor is uh, essentially trapped in the pocket universe and he's saying, okay, you're trying to scare me. I know what you're trying to do. And, and what were you hearing? You were hearing very evil, ma- malevolent laughter. Yes. And it okay, doesn't at the fit time, with the whole No, not when you get form. to the end of the story. At the time it happened, I, I thought, oh, okay, interesting. Uh, there's more than just this pocket universe. Maybe there's a malevolent force that a malevolent force that exists in this pocket universe. It it dragged our, our time traveler. Um, it's it's somehow maybe it's accelerating the entropy. Whatever's going on in there. So I started formulating all these ideas based on hearing this very sinister laugh. And then what exactly? So, I mean, there's a couple possibilities. I mean, one, maybe this this twisted creature uh, does get his jollies by scaring the occasional person who pops into this rapidly diminishing bubble universe. Um, And so maybe the doctor was, was correct. Maybe that's what this thing was trying to do. It was trying to scare him because it certainly seemed to be going to attack him when the TARDIS rescued him. Uh, It jumped on him and, and threw him to the ground and the TARDIS had to knock it off. So that seemed like a aggressive attack but when the doctor came back 
he was broadcasting his intentions. I know what you are. I know where you're trying to get. I'm here to help you. I can help you. Maybe the creature, you know, it, yes, maybe it's malevolent, but it's also obviously intelligent. And so it, it may be that he just recognized a helping hand when one's being offered. If that's the case, I don't know about you, but for me personally, that seems cheap. Well, the ending was, I, that it just, I, I just can't, I, I have a hard time, uh, accepting that as a, as a, as, as a viable character. That, yeah, I, that, I mean, it, it, I mean, it's, it's a reach. Yes. Oh, yeah. But that ending is a reach because you, you're left with like, there's just so many, so many unanswered questions about that, those two creatures that, uh, ah, it, it's just, it's just bad. It's just yeah. bad storytelling to, to do that. I mean, fine, leave us with some questions, but don't, don't invalidate what was going on in your story. Um, or, or take, you detracts from the other story. I mean, they didn't need that creature chasing her. No. They could have done anything like a big fireball back there chasing her or something that would cause her to be running through this pocket universe. That would have been sufficient to have achieved the effect that they were going for, where it's really her running. Um, so yeah, I, I, I can't say I, I particularly like that piece of the piece of the equation. Yeah, it didn't, it, that certainly didn't work out for me. All right. Well, let's talk about one thing before we get to the big elephant in the room, the big blue elephant in the room. Mm-hmm. Um, we had the sequence where the doctor made the, and I cannot think of its name to save my life, but he lashed up that equipment. It to enhance the psyche, and I have to I have to go back and watch it again, and then check check uh, Planet of Spiders. But I believe that the name of that device is the same name of the device that he had created for the psychic in Planet of Spiders. Hmm. I the second time through, I'm watching it, and I heard that name, and I said, "Oh, that's the that's what he had lashed together in the in the unit workshop to test the the psychic." It could be. I haven't watched Planet of the Sp- Planet of Spiders in a while. I'd have to do, do And obviously they'd just been watching it. Well, they'd just been reading it because they pulled up the, the crystal from Metabolus three or Metabolus well, three. However Matt Smith mispronounced it and nobody apparently was paying attention on continuity. Um and okay, there's nice nice little nice little lash up there and mention to the past, but of course there are no more crystals. No. Those, the doctor had the last one. He gave it to Joe Grant. Joe sent it back to the doctor, and, and him returning it to the cave of the great spider was what destroyed the doctor. Right. And I think blew up the blew up the cave and the, uh, the queen. Yeah, and, yeah because it, it just set up this big radio radiation feedback or something. And and burned her out. So I, yeah. Yeah, the fact that he has one of those crystals... Kind of says, well, you, you didn't notice what happened at the end of the story. Plus, he's got it all wired up too. Oh, the segment of the Eye of, of Harmony. I really don't like that bit about um, the Eye of Harmony in the Doctor's the I, I, TARDIS. I was just so, doctor. so distressed when they brought that back up. Because then I started thinking, okay, so what, what the heck really powers the, the, uh, the TARDIS? And, and, and first we're told of the Eye of Harmony. Then we're told that it, it runs on some sort of uh, I, I don't know. He th- fills it up on the the time rift. Yeah, R- right. Uh, spots where there's a time rift. 
And then, and then we find out that then the doctor's wife, well, it's the matrix. It's, it's the soul of the TARDIS. And he's like, wait a minute. What, what is it? They and, don't know. And then the fact that they bring back the Eye of Harmony anyway, I mean, the, I, the very concept that each TARDIS has a bit of the Eye of Harmony in it so that it is in some sort of connection with the Eye of Harmony on Gallifrey. Um, and well, why that's, is that so that's a lousy idea. And then two, now that Gallifrey has been time looped along with everything else in the Time War, uh, wouldn't that kind of make the Eye of Harmony in the, uh, in, in the TARDIS rather, um, impotent? And you know, there's another reason behind this. This is such a bad, it was a bad idea in the eighth Doctor's movie when they brought the Eye of Harmony up. It's like, it, that was a, that was a slap your forehead moment and saying, boy, did you, did you botch your continuity? Because if you will remember back to the Deadly Assassin, the Doctor is trying to explain what he's learning to the various characters who are helping him. And one of the things that he talks about is the Eye of Harmony. They're reading from the book, and he's talking about the Eye of Harmony, and the Doctor says, oh, that must be a black hole. And the basically, everyone tells him the Eye of Harmony is a myth. And right. the doctor is like, no, it's not a no, myth. It's this not is a obviously, can't you see what Rassilon did? He managed to bind the forces of a black hole together in perfect balance. And that's what, that's what gives you the power of time travel. Right. So there's no way that they've been building bits of the eye of harmony into Tardises when none of them even knew it existed. Precisely. So that was a horrible continuity error, which I was more than willing to forget from the eighth doctor's movie along with being half human. Um, those are really the two things you just have to go. I don't want to ever hear that again. We can just yeah. forget that. Um, so yeah, the, having the eye of harmony here was, was, was not a good, not a good thing, but, but the equipment was kind of cool. I mean, it really was very, very John Pertwee. Oh, quite. So we had in rings of Akatan, we had a reference to the doctor's granddaughter. Susan, first doctor, right? And in uh, Cold War, it's basically a Pertwee story, or sorry, a Troughton story, Trout. we told. And this one is Pertwee. In fact, it's very much a Pertwee story, if you want to well, think about it, because well, take kind it of with haunted blackiness. houses and ghosts and stuff is exiled to Earth. That's really a Pertwee story. I mean, take away the wackiness that the doctor... Yeah, well, yeah. But, but yeah, the, but the story elements certainly do feel like it would have been a better suited as a, as a Pertwee. And I, I dare say he would have done it better, because... Venusian Aikido. <laughs> I'm surprised we haven't had a reference to Venusian Aikido. Not uh, yet. In, in the uh, anniversary year. Uh, so let's let's um, let's address the big one. The big one. I, what what the hell's wrong with these people in the TARDIS? Neil Cross in this. Oh, the TARDIS doesn't like me. I I dislike this at so many levels. I dislike the fact that we have a companion who. Of all the companions the Doctor has ever had, this appears to be one that, on immediate contact with the TARDIS, knows that it's a sentient creature and that they take an immediate dislike to one another. Right. I don't like that, although we'll take a, a, a brief detour here. If you'll recall in, this, uh, in the story, it's stated that all that scientific equipment that the Professor has will not record any information at all without the presence of emma's psychic abilities that she is not the catalyst but she's an, an integral part of it to make it work and say it won't work without her without her you know using her gift later in the story when the doctor and clara are hunting around uh, the doctor leaves a circle on the floor where he finds a cold spot 
And then he abandons Clara again, just like he did in Rings of Akatan. But when she follows him, she crosses that circle. And when she crosses the circle, suddenly... Oh, the, things go wild. Things go wild, yeah. The circle starts screaming. The equipment starts registering. The equipment that required Emma as a catalyst, we'll use catalyst for the word, uh, starts registering because of something Clara did. And not only that, the manifestation is much stronger than it was before. We get the flying disc, we get the words written on the wall, which makes no sense whatsoever. So I think they're setting Clara up to be, in some capacity, empathic or psychic. That there's something, otherwise she just simply, she and the telepathic circuits and the TARDIS are not getting along. Somehow. And yet... Emma said, she's just a girl. She's just a regular girl. There's nothing, you know. I mean, she didn't say there was anything, that, that there was nothing special about her. She just simply said, she's, she's a normal girl. Yep. So she did. So I, was she lying to the doctor? Or maybe. I, I, I didn't get the feeling that she was. No, neither did I. Although the line interesting about she's more scared than she lets on is interesting. Um, it's, it's, strange because she was letting on quite a lot that she was scared in this episode yeah so if she was even more scared than she was letting on then she was mightily scared she must have been terrified yeah yeah so uh, there's that anyway the tardis reacts to her they go into the tardis they travel you know forward and backward through time Clara shakes out an umbrella on the TARDIS floor and then apologizes. And the TARDIS responds. It makes a noise at her. Yeah. She says, sorry. Goes, Which, then later I, on. So I don't necessarily have a problem with, with, with TARDIS noises or things like that. I mean, they kind of hinted at that a little bit in the past, especially during the Tom Baker era. So that itself didn't necessarily bother me. But there's something. No, if that had been the extent uh, of it, that had been fine. That would have been fine. But no. Oh, God, no. No, it manifests a it manifests a an image, an interface, a, an interface, so that it can communicate with her something that the TARDIS not only has it never been able to do throughout the entire history of of the series, or even been hinted that it could do that at that level, but directly contradicted in Neil Gaiman's The Doctor's Wife, which basically lays out that the TARDIS and the TARDIS's intelligence, such as it is, is so so vast, vastly spread over and, and time and aware, like eleven dimensional being. Yeah, it doesn't have any. It doesn't have any sense of past, present, and future. No, because it, it 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 exists in all at the same time. So it cannot communicate except when it gets pulled out and put into a human body. So this is you know a fouling up with that notion. And B, it it says, I've got billions of people in here, and I found somebody you hold in esteem or something like that. Yeah, an image of herself. And it's an image of herself. What is What kind of a catty remark is that? Well, that's why Clara says, oh, you are a cow. Yeah. It, it's, a, it's an odd... Uh, it's I mean, odd. It's, it's, it's so narcissistic. I mean, at least, at least that's what the TARDIS is think, thinks that Clara is. And, you know, the TARDIS uh, is probably, might be right in some way. But it it just seems, and it, the conversation, the conversation does nothing. Oh, it, it's, it means nothing. It, it's, it serves no purpose. Nothing is exchanged in information from the TARDIS to Clara that she didn't already know. 
And because the doctor had already said almost word for word, maybe even exactly word for word, it may have just been a replay of what the doctor said about not being able to go into the pocket universe. And and that's, you know, then after a while, Clara kind of goes, well, I can't even hear what you're saying. We got to say the doctor. All I hear is meh, 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 meh. And then the TARDIS lets her in and they go rescue the doctor. It's just. Oh, oh I know. And it goes off flying with her holding on for dear life. I would have been perfectly fine if the cloister, and, and the other thing is, of course, the cloister bell rings and is basically calling because it, it must know that the doctor is in another universe. So it's calling to Clara. You know, the cloister or, is like it just, or, or is it just signaling impending danger? What would be the impending danger to the TARDIS? Um, no, impending danger to the doctor. It may not have been signaling to Clara. It just may have been just simply saying, uh, well, the doctor's in trouble. Maybe not to Clara personally. But just that the doctor's in trouble. Boy, that's that seems like an awful lot of. Uh, well, I mean, let's face it: the doctor's been in trouble a lot of times. And yeah, but his, I mean, his existence. It's only was... it's only when the TARDIS has been in imminent danger that we've seen. Or when the universe is in imminent danger, as in Legopolis. Well, then the TARDIS goes with it. Yeah. So yeah, it. it, it but it was. It weird. appears that it calls her. Yeah. It it certainly is what beckons her to the TARDIS, and then. It it has a little hissy fit with her, and then they go off on a mission. But I would have been perfectly fine if she had called called her with a, the cloister bell, and she'd gone out to the door, and the door is like, won't open. Clara could have done the whole dialogue herself. She could have said, we've got to go save the doctor. He's trapped in this parallel universe. Door doesn't open. Yes, I know. The doctor told me that you would not be able to power, but surely we've got to try. Door opens. Yeah. No, no interaction required there, and you accomplish exactly the same thing, except making that stupid moment with the Avatar that now is another piece of stupid canon that they've thrown into the Doctor uh, timeline. Uh, as you said, I didn't care for it. I mean, at first I kind of thought, well, maybe this is the computer, but still, even if it is, then why have we not seen that before? And if it's not, why are, why are we seeing it now? I mean, it shouldn't be because of the reasons you just discussed. I mean, I was, I was kind of puzzled by it. Keith was livid. He was like, no, they can't do this because it, it's not right because of everything we knew in the doctor's wife. So it was, it, it made for a very, very bad scene. I wonder what, what little crumb that Moffat has given to his writers this year. Um, that well, especially since we know what next week's episode is, and that's how that's Clara getting lost in the TARDIS. Yeah. Now that kind of adds a little more significance to it. Yeah, I, I just wonder if Moffat went to all his writers across the board and he said, well, this year uh, you can write stuff in about maybe the Clara and the TARDIS not uh, not getting... Not getting on very well. very well, and uh, we'll... I'll don't worry. I'll tie it all up at the end, kind of thing. Um, and I don't think that I don't think Gaddis did anything with it. There was no evidence of it in the bells of Saint John. No. Um, I guess we could we could maybe argue that the Hads got the TARDIS out of there fast to get away from Clara, but maybe. In which case, then Gaddis did a much nicer job of layering that in there. Um, It'll be funny if that turns up in a flashback at the end of the season. And then remember when the Hads took the Tardis? <laughs> oh. But, um, yeah, I, 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 I'm going to have to put, I don't think Mr. Cross is right. 
for writing Doctor Who. No, I, I don't think this is quite his uh, his avenue. So have we got anything else about this episode? I I think that pretty much covers it. As, as I said, this was an episode I, I desperately wanted to like it, but there were too many of these other things that just got in the way, which took it sucked enough of the joy out of the episode for me to say, you know, it. I wanted to like it, but I just, I, 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 I mean, I suppose it's okay, but I don't like it. I, I enjoyed the ride for the most part on the on the episode. I just like you, particularly the scene with Clara and the TARDIS was like rubbing a Brillo pad on a on an open wound. For a moment, it was just like, wow, you've been doing so well. Thank you so much for now intentionally hurting me. And, yeah, get past that. Like I said, we could have done it without the thing, and I wouldn't have been so bothered. Get past that, and you get through the whole story, you get to the end, and then they throw that two monsters just wanting to get along thing, which, Ugh. like I say, just, it, 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 that would have served. It just ruined the, it, that, in a way, ruined the story for me. Well, but I can't did. say in it fact, didn't enjoy the ride along the way. That would have served f- much better as its own story. Yeah, or we try to figure out what the heck's going on with that. Right, but creature. don't insert it at the end of this this ghost story. I mean, it, it's 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 a strange thing that they're just tagging on, uh, and and to me that just took away from the overall episode. Well, I think that's it. I think uh, what we have left here is to let Simon uh, have his opinion. And uh, we'll play that in now. So take it away, Simon. Metabolis, metabolis. But the internet's going to be alive with that. Uh, I'll say no more about it. Except 1974, there's more than one small nod to John Pertwee in this one. There are two things I particularly like Doctor Who doing. One is the genre episodes like The Unquiet Dead or The Unicorn and the Wasp or A Town Called Mercy. This was going to be a haunted house story, so I was looking forward to that, but it didn't quite turn out to be exactly what I expected. The other thing I like is when Doctor Who surprises me, and it doesn't happen that often. Well, tonight, it really did surprise. What starts as a stone tape-style paranormal investigation opens out in scope into a survey of Earth's entire history in a way that puts the pyramids of Mars in the shade and startles Clara with the casualness with which the Doctor treats the whole of Earth's history. I love the fact that Clara here is being warned about the Doctor. Our sympathies are shifted to her as she is told the Doctor has a sliver of ice in his heart. Neil Cross has written what appears to be another very simple story here, but actually, once you unpack it, there's an awful lot going on. Clara's relationship with the TARDIS and with the Doctor, the Doctor's pursuit of the mystery of Clara, and a haunted house story that turns out to span not only multiple dimensions but multiple universes and be a love story to boot. It's impressive to make a complex and convoluted story appear so simple and satisfying and to portray it all through a piece of drama that involves just, I believe, five actors. So a smaller cast than even Russell T. Davis's Midnight. 
This was very accomplished storytelling. I had no idea where it was going throughout. It kept me on the edge of my seat. And yet at the end, it was all woven into a whole that felt satisfying and complete. And with a few nods to Doctor Who of the past, also felt like something Doctor Who had not done before. All right. Well, uh, we hope everyone will join us again next time when we continue our rapidly diminishing series of episodes about the current series of Doctor Who. Until next time. Cheers. Fusion Patrol is a Lone Locust production. Like us? Leave us a review on iTunes. Or stop by and visit at our website, fusionpatrol.com. Find us on Facebook or Twitter. Search for Fusion Patrol. Or just drop us a note at feedback at fusionpatrol.com. Our music is Fight the Future by Amber Wolf.